All right, good to see you in the house of the Lord this evening. In this nice duck weather evening, or bay. Well, it's supposed to be sunny tomorrow, I think, so. Uh, it be sun sign in your heart. Matthew chapter 28, Matthew chapter 28. Tonight we're going to be kind of continuing and I think concluding our series, but tonight title is A Pattern for a New Testament Church, A Pattern for a New Testament Church. Matthew 28 and also Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. So Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and then Acts 1 and verse 8. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. And of course, Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says, But ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. Of course, these two passages of Scripture are of the five places in the Bible that the Lord gives us what we call the Great Commission, what's often been called the Great Commission. But tonight we want to look at it and, and as think about this Great Commission. I think it's misunderstood by many people. Uh, but as we consider this, uh, we'll see a pattern for New Testament churches. So let's pray and then we'll look at it. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the privilege and opportunity we have to open your precious word. I pray that you give us wisdom and understanding in the preaching and teaching of your word and understanding and the hearing of it, that we may learn and grow in our grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us. And in his word, he has given us a pattern that we are to follow and uh, reproduce uh, until our Lord returns for us. And uh, we'll thank you and praise you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the last 40, 50 years have been years of the, quote, church growth movement or the mega church. Um, this method is adopted, of course, by many independent Baptists who, in like manner, built large churches, many of them using marketing methods of soul winning. Uh, and a lot of those methods are, you know, you might have a 12-step plan or a 10-step plan or you have a, a Romans Road or a four-step plan of salvation. I, and one of those I, I have actually on here. But the interesting thing I discovered, I discovered is and we don't have any examples of a soul-winning plan like this in the New Testament. You won't find it. In fact, the Romans Road is not written to unsaved people. It's written to save people. So, most soul-winners are really taking a lot of that out of context. Um, it can be used, but it's not the context of the book of Romans. It's written to Christians, to the churches at Rome. You know, the great New Testament preachers did not use it. They didn't use a soul winner's plan. Uh, John the Baptist didn't use it. Jesus didn't use it. Peter didn't use it. Paul didn't use it. You know, they dealt with people on an individual basis. And each person was different. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, we see John the Baptist's method. And... He says, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to meet him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath of God, bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. 
And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father, for say unto you that God is able these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Uh, and of course here, you know, John the Baptist comes on the scene. He says, Repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is in hand. Uh, my father-in-law's brother uh, does some work with computers, and he's also a pastor. Anyway, he made a trip to the Soviet Union. Uh, this has probably been 15, 20 years ago, something to do with, I don't know if it was what exactly he went over there for, something to do with computers and in and, 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 and churches too. But anyway, he said he, he, when he, over there, he said they have an interesting way they witness. They don't say, are you saved? They say, have you repented yet? Have you repented yet? And here, you know, John says, repent ye, the kingdom of heaven is in hand. In fact, John would not baptize certain people that came to him and wanted to be baptized. You know, there are a lot of people today that say, when a person gets saved, we need to baptize them immediately. John didn't. John looked for fruit. He wanted to see some evidence before he would baptize. In Luke chapter 18, Luke chapter 18, we have the rich young ruler coming to Jesus, and he's and, and Matthew tells us he comes running, so he's in haste, and he's in, he's in urgency about this. And he asks, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 18, Jesus saith unto him, verse 19, Why callest thou me good? None is good, save one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not fear false witness, honor thy father and mother. And he said, All these have I kept from my youth up. Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yea, lackest thou one thing? Sell all thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, come follow me. When he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of heaven? Now there's a couple of things here that, that to me, kind of stand out a little bit. First, he, he says, Good master. Good master. Is that all Jesus is, just a good master? See, that, mean, that to me throws a question mark. And Jesus addresses that, a question mark, who he thought Jesus was. Because Jesus says, okay, why do you call me good? There's only one good. That's God. So if I am really good, truly good, thoroughly good, truly good, I am God. I'm not just a good master. And here's a, pil- a person who is, and what we have here is a person who is unwilling to turn away from their sin. He's covetous. He's an idolater. His wealth, of course, is his idol. But you know, he's guilty of the others, too. Uh, he just doesn't think he is. But, but, uh, but anyway, he's unrepentant, and, and, and Jesus lets him go away. He doesn't even try to debate with him. Luke 13, 3 and 5, two times Jesus said, Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. In John 4, when, he, when Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman, you know, he, he has a, a, a discussion with her, and she says, Well, when Messiah cometh, he will tell us all things. And he simply says, I am he. And the word he there is in italics in our English Bible, which means it's added to make a complete sentence or to make sense in English. So really what he said in the Greek was, I am. I am the Messiah. I am the anointed one of God. I am God. I'm, I'm the one that's going to die for sin. And, and upon this, the disciples came and she leaves. We have no indication at all that she has made any decision whatsoever concerning her salvation until she goes back to town. And she t- says, Come see a man that told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? See, she gave evidence there that she believed in him as the Messiah. Although there was no indication. In other words, Jesus didn't press her for a decision. It's something that she did on her own will. And unless a person makes that decision on their own will, they're unpersuaded. Still. 
Peter in Acts chapter 2 declares to the Jews who Jesus was, whom they slew, and then he says that they need to be repent and be baptized. In Acts chapter 20, verse 21, Paul, of course, testifying both Jews and Greeks, repents toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, one of the things that I have discovered or learned over the years is that fundamentalists are really good at. That is, taking a verse like Acts 16.31 and building their whole evangelism method on it. Which simply says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. See, they, they say, they, and they would say something like this, and, you know, and, and I've read you know, the debates back and forth of, of people like this, and even talked to some. They say that, well, you know, to the Jews, yes, they need to repent, but when, when the, they took the gospel to Gentiles, no, that was different. No, it wasn't. Acts 20, 21, testifying both to Jews and the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, if you're going to build your whole evangelism method on Acts 16, 31, you're taking it out of context. They didn't have to tell the Philippian jailer to repent. He already had. He already had. You know, I don't know about you. Do you like it when someone misquotes you by taking something you said out of context? I have to wonder how God feels about it when we take his word out of context. But this, you know, this has been the pattern of evangelism among a lot of independent Baptists and, of course, the church growth movement. And I had an article here about the, the mega church burst and the church growth movement. Uh, it's by David Eagle, histor- historizing, historicizing the megachurch, uh, February 2015, from Journal of Science History. Anyway, it says, uh, The megachurch burst into the American consciousness in, eight, in the 1980s. Megachurches differed from their predecessors by offering their participants a single organization to meet their spiritual, emotional, educational, and recreational needs. 1989, the vanguard of the megachurch movement, 37-year-old Bill Hybel said, We are on the verge of making... Kingdom history, doing things a new way for a whole generation, unquote. Uh, Patrick Ullett says this. He sees them as an innovation of post-World War II America. And he says, quote, America's new mega churches were designed to provide entire way of life, including schools, gymnasium, dining halls, study group settings, therapy sessions, aerobics classes, bowling alleys, and sometimes even Christian-themed shopping, unquote. Marty, Martin Marty says simply, mega church, or quote, mega church is an invention of the age of greed, unquote. But here's how it started. Uh, during, the, during the 1980s, the so-called church growth movement began by gaining, began gaining prominence due in large part to establishment of the Charles E. Fuller Institute of Evangelism and Church Growth at Fuller Seminary in 1980. This movement promoted marketing-based approaches to church organizations and heralded several signature churches, of course, Willow Community Church, Saddleback Community, that's Bill Hybels and Rick Warren, and then as purveyors of a new kind of church for a new age, Elmore Towns at Liberty University, Stephen Vaughn at Southwestern Baptist Seminary, and C. Peter Wagner and Carl George Fuller at Fuller Seminary all occupied a central role in this movement, unquote, and so on. Uh, but, you know, prior to that, Jack Howells, and they were, they were using it. It was a marketing way of giving out the gospel, and if you do, to, to market the gospel, you have to take certain aspects out of it to make it marketable. And the, what you have to take out of it is repentance. And of course, Jack Howells taught, and uh, Curtis Huston, the two of the most, biggest promoters of this, they said that repentance is simply a change of mind, a change from unbelief to belief. That is not biblical repentance. Uh, it is a change of mind, but we see from very clearly from John the Baptist's statement that it also included a change of action. But anyway, so as we look at the scriptures and a pattern for a New Testament church, there are I have three things. I boil it down to three things. This is not, of course, exhaustive, but I think it'll 
cover what we need to understand. There needs to be biblical evangelization of the lost. And in our text, in Matthew chapter 28, he says, Matthew 28 and verse 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, <coughs> excuse me, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. <coughs> excuse me. So, biblical evangelism, he says they're to teach them, <clears throat> all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. So, biblical evangelism, therefore, requires knowledge and understanding of some things. First of all, the understanding of God. And not just, why well, I believe there is a God. I mean, after all, the devils believe there's a God. They believe there's a Jesus Christ. They believe there's a Holy Spirit. They believe that. But they're not saved. James was 2.20 says the devils believe and tremble. Uh, no, it's more than just to believe in God. We have to understand some things about His person. His holiness. Demonstrated, of course, by the law of God. Where do you find, where do you, get, where do you learn the, the, the holiness of God? It's through the law of God. That's his standard of righteousness. So we have to understand something about God's person and that God cannot justify the guilty. That we are, of course, uh, we are before a holy and righteous God in our sinful state. We are condemned under a state of condemnation. We're under the wrath of God. That's the only thing God can do with sin or sinners. Can't fellowship with him because he's holy. But most people that are led in the sinner's prayer have no idea that God is a holy and righteous God. You have to understand something about the person of Jesus Christ. His deity, again, that he is God, his sinless humanity, that he's the only acceptable sacrifice for sin. If you would go to India, and Brian Pratt and I have talked about this, because there was a pastor up in Delaware years ago when we were still living in Maryland. And he was making trips to India, and he actually eventually left, his, left the church. He was pastoring a big church there in, in Delaware, and he, he had quite a big name. And, and so he was making these trips to India, and he was supposedly getting thousands of people saved. Brian just came back from India. And Brian and him had a quite heated discussion in the, the uh, college wing at the church there at Maryland when we were still there, and he, Brian basically told him, what you're doing is you're leading them in a, in, a, in, a, in a prayer, and they're just adding Jesus Christ to another God they already have. That's all you're doing. Because, after all, they, they believe in many gods. If you, if you talk to any missionary that's, that's true to the Scriptures, you know, David Collado said this many times, that in, 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 the, in the Asian countries, in the East, you know, they'll, they'll, if you aren't careful, they'll just add Jesus to another one of their gods. And they'll pray. I mean, they're very religious people. They, they want to be sure. After, oh, they're not sure. So they want to make sure they cover their bases, so they'll just add Jesus. No, we understand who Jesus is. By the way, Americans are that way today. We're not any different. Now, who is Jesus Christ? You know, we understand that He is the only acceptable sacrifice for sin. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now, the people might say, well, that's kind of daring dogmatic. That's what the Bible is. There's only one way to God. You know, even in many churches, there, in many so-called churches, there are different things added to Christ for salvation. You know, baptism and good works. Uh, if you would go to a Catholic church, they would probably assure you of, of eternal life by six or seven different ways. You know, uh, you have to uh, be baptized, you have to take communion, you have to do, uh, keep the sacraments, and you have to do this and you have to do that, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and, and, you know, you, you, you know as well as I, you get a lot of phrases like this. Well, I think I'll be okay. I haven't been that bad. What are they saying? That's works. That is works. 
Because there's no one in the sight of God that's just, that's, quote, just not that bad. We were all the children of wrath, even as others, Ephesians 2 tells us. Of course, and again, understanding, uh, let it be, understanding of their state before God. You know, they're unrighteous, they're lost, they're condemned under his wrath, they're unforgiven. And again, this, this goes back to understanding that what it really means to be a sinner. You know, almost everybody will admit to be a sinner, but, but most people don't want to admit that they are deserving of God's wrath or condemnation. I mean, after all, I'm not that bad. I know, you know, a guy said to my father, well, I never murdered anyone. And he was pretty rotten, I'm telling you. I knew the guy. But, you know, he, what was he trying to do? Justify himself. There must be a repentance, which is a change of mind that produces a change in action. You know, too often people change their minds without changing their action, and that is really just a lie. You know, and by the way, repentance doesn't necessarily mean changing from sin. It really doesn't have anything to do with sin. It has to do with changing your mind about something and then changing your direction. Look at Jonah chapter 3 and verse 10. It doesn't have really anything to do with sin. Because God repents. Does God sin? Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3 and verse 10. The Bible says, And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. And God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. Now, they repented. You know, God saw. You know, Jonah said that they needed to repent for 40 days and God was going to overthrow the place. Well, they did. They repented in sackcloth and ashes, verses 8 and 9. Tell us about this. And, and then it says in verse 10, God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. That's, that's true repentance. And again, and God repented of the evil that he had said he would do unto them, and he did it not. So God changed his mind and changed what he was going to do to them. See, that's what repentance is. It's a change of mind that changes one's actions. It is, it, you know, to, to us, it's self-judgment. It is to admit to us, or to, to admit, or to agree with God as a sinner, that I am worthy to death, I deserve a burial. So, it's a change of mind. It produces a change of actions. There needs to be faith. Faith is trust or dependence on. Now, in Colossians 2, there's an interesting statement here in Colossians chapter 2 that I never really thought this way of before. But Colossians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13 says this, Buried with him in baptism, wherein also you're risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who raised him from the dead. You know, to me, repentance is like a, uh, is like a burial. It's, it's the negative part. Faith is like the resurrection. It's the positive side of salvation. You know, they're both, they're, they're both necessary, and they happen simultaneously, I believe, and when a person is born again, you know, they repent and they put their faith in Christ. And it's like two sides of one coin, it's often been said. So repentance is, is, is like a burial. You agree with God. You judge yourself. Faith is to put your trust and dependence upon. And he says that we're buried with him in baptism, where also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God. You know, faith is an operation of God, a working in us, Inefficiency, you might say, how it's used in the New Testament of superhuman power. Faith comes from God. Romans 10.14 says, Romans 10.17. Yeah, Romans 10.17. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And so, faith is the work of God. And again, in in Colossians chapter 1 and verse... 29, he says, Whereunto also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me 
mightily. So again, it was, it was God working in Paul, giving him the superhuman power or the efficiency to do what he did by faith in the Lord. So there, there needs to be an understanding of these things, repentance of faith. And then fifthly, we must allow the Holy Spirit to convince or convict. Yeah, in John chapter 3, verses 5 through 8, John chapter 3, verses 5 through 8, when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, and, and he says to him in verse 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except ye man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, the word water here, I believe, is referring to the physical birth. For you notice verse 6, I think, explains verse 5. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And a physical birth is often referred to as a water birth. Baby's carried in a sack of water until it's born. And then that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goes, so is every one that is born of the Spirit. So the new birth is actually something of the Spirit. It's not something I convince somebody of. Or persuade somebody of. Again, Jesus didn't persuade the Samaritan woman. He didn't try to persuade the rich young ruler. He let him go away. And we must allow the Holy Spirit to convince and convict a person of the need to be born again. You know, Gary Forney, I don't know how many of you heard this story. I think it might have been in a class, in a class, missions class he was teaching. But when he was in the Arctic, he got word that a man across the lake, he got word toward evening, that a man across the lake was dying of cancer. And so he said, uh, you know, I didn't know what, how serious it was, so he said, I put my moccasins on, and he said, the last thing I want to do is go out at that time of night, because he said, if I, I knew if I crossed the lake, I'd have to spend the night over there. But he said, I did. I got my, 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 my you know, bundled up and everything and, and went across the frozen lake to this man's house. And he said, I went in, and, and I said, uh, you, know, you know, here you're, you're dying of cancer, and I've tongue, come to talk to you about you know, life after death. You ever, you ever, you know, anybody ever talked to you? He said, and he very unceremonious, he was sitting in an overstuffed chair, and he, he pulled out, he pulled up the arm of the chair, and he pulled out from under that arm of the chair a Bible, and he opened it and read John chapter 3 and verse 5. He said, I've asked every preacher, I've asked every priest I know, what does it mean to be born again? And nobody can give me an answer. He, spent, I said, he said, I spent three hours talking to that man. And he said, I saw him get saved. I saw his countenance. I saw him get saved. He said later, he got really bad and he was in the hospital. He went to see him. He could no longer speak. But when he saw me come, he said, he mumbled the words, born again, man. That's all I could say. You know, when we were in New Brunswick, Canada, years for about a year, there was a man there. His wife came to the Bible study group we were meeting with, church we were meeting with at the time, trying to start a church. His wife came several times, and we went to see her. And uh, he stayed in the living room. He would not come out. So we were talking with her, and he, said, he, he asked a question, something about jacking deer, you know, because we lived out in the, there was fields out there, you know. So, and I, so I went in, and I started talking to him. And I talked to him a little bit, and, and I witnessed to him, and he never really responded. We visited there several times, probably, I don't know how many times over the years, course of time there, probably five or six times, and he never really did give any response. But I gave him the gospel. A year or two later, friends of ours from that area called one day and said, just wanted to let you know, Basil Wagner was baptized today at such and such Baptist church where we go. And he said, 
that Jason Byler gave me the gospel. And I never knew. I never knew. You see, if the Spirit of God is working, you won't have to pry and pressure to get people to accept Christ. You know, the typical method of evangelism is this. That you, that, uh, this is to receive Christ. A person needs to do four things. And you'll see a lot of this on a lot of independent Baptist church websites. Admit you're a sinner. Ask forgiveness. Be willing to turn away from your sins. Believe that Christ died for you. And receive Christ in your life, your heart and life. And of course, you know, here's you know, Romans 10.13 says, Whosoever is called upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Here's a prayer you can pray to receive Christ. And they give you a sinner's prayer that you can pray and receive Christ into your heart. Well, I have a couple questions. Why do I need to be saved? That really isn't answered in those four things. Because you're a sinner? Well, what is a sinner? What does that mean? I've sinned a couple times. I'm not that bad. That's what we hear a lot. What is my present state before God? Again, am I condemned? You know, you know, the Bible tells us that we're condemned. We're under his wrath if we're without Christ. And, and who is Jesus Christ? Again, who is Jesus Christ? The Son of God or he is the, the only begotten Son of God? You know, there are even preachers today who are teaching that Jesus is not the only begotten Son of God. We're all sons of God. If you don't believe it, just watch Paula White and Larry Hutch and a lot of others. You know, is he the only acceptable way? Am I willing to receive him as Lord? You know, again, and nowhere does the Bible say receive Christ in your heart. It says believe in your heart. It doesn't say receive him in your heart. You know, believe in your heart of course, refers to your inner man. And here's, here's an example of this. Some years ago, I went in visitation with a pastor who was older than I, and we visited this older couple. They were sitting out on the front porch. I remember it was a very hot evening in July. The lady said she was saved. They attended a Lutheran church some. The pastor gave him the Romans road, then asked him if he'd like to pray and asked the Lord to save him. And I don't really remember what he said, but, you know, I guess so, or... You know, he didn't look very convinced to me. But he repeated a prayer. And as we left there, I thought to myself, I really don't think that man understood what he was talking about. I asked the pastor later, six months to a year, if, they ever, if he ever came to church. He said, no, we can't get him to come. Well, you know, John 8, 31 says, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. I fear that there's a lot of false professions made because of this kind of soul winning techniques. So there needs to be a biblical evangelization of the lost. Secondly, there needs to be continual indoctrination of the saints. Again, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20 says, teaching them to observe all things, whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So there needs to be a continual indoctrination of the saints. Now, you know, we, I have been accused of brainwashing people. Let me ask you something. What's the left trying to do to America? They're trying to indoctrinate them into believing that socialism is a good thing. You know what that is? That's brainwashing. Now, if I'm accused of brainwashing people into believing the truth, I'll thank you very much. That's really what indoctrination is. You're to put it in their minds. And there is to be continual indoctrination of the saints, or teaching. That's what teaching is. It's doctrine. It means to impart instruction, to instill doctrine into... You know, in Acts chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, it says, Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. When he found him, he brought him unto Antioch. 
came to pass that the whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. You know, why were these disciples at Antioch different than the other churches? What marked them out? The continual indoctrination of the Word of God. You know, Barnabas said, you know what? I think it'd be good if I could get Paul to come over here and help me. I believe Barnabas was the first pastor at the church of Antioch. The church of Jerusalem sent him there. And, and so he goes to Tarsus and, and brings Saul. And of course, then they stay there. And then there were others that were raised up within the church and taught much people. And Acts 13 says that, you know, that, they, that there were many others. And then the church, then it was from there that the first missionaries were sent out. You see, the purpose of assembling together as a church is not to win souls. That's not why we gather here. We gather here for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. In other words, a maturity. So that we are equipped then to go out into the world and be an effective witness to know and understand what we're trying to tell people about, who we're trying to tell people about. You know, independent Baptist churches are full of people that really don't know what they believe in the real world. They just know how to act in the bubble they live in. They know the Roman throws and the pat answers to the questions the world's allowed to ask. After all, if you're out there soul winning, what they tell you is, don't take questions. Just tell them, if a person asks you questions, just tell them, I'll answer that later. Because one, soul, one of the supposed the greatest soul winners of the 20th century said, sinners don't have questions. See, you're not supposed to let them ask questions. You know, one of the greatest ways to learn is to ask questions. You know, to me, all that is is a cover-up for your ignorance. I'm not being, an answer, being able to answer the questions that the world has. In fact, Peter tells us, be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a hope of the reason that's in you with meekness and fear. You see, that's, that's the purpose of the church is so we learn. But see, most independent Baptists are so, too, so too ignorant because all they ever get is salvation messages over and over and over again. I know, I've been in some. Yeah, they, are, they, they know, you know they're, not, they're supposed to dress conservative and not drink. Why? They're not sure. Again, the reason is the preaching emphasis is mostly about salvation. Like two evangelists said one time at a pastor's fellowship, was like, we need to keep the main thing the main thing. It was all about soul winning. You know, how many independent Baptists could give three references to eternal security? Or the indwelling of the Spirit of God? Or prove that Jesus is God from the Bible? Or that baptism is not necessary for salvation? Or some references about the rapture of the saints? Or the origin of sin? Or prove that God created the world in six days from the scriptures. Or that God's not willing that any should perish. And see, when we learn about God, it will do more to help you than anything else in this world. And so there needs to be this continual doctrination. Look at 1 Timothy. I'm going to look at a few passages of Scripture here that bear this out. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 16, or verses 1 through 16. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and not to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. 
for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. Now, none of those things have to do with salvation that he just read, that I just read. And Paul said to Timothy, if you put the brethren in remembrance of those things, you'll be a good minister of Jesus Christ. But refuse and profane old wise fables and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. But bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable in all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation, for we both, therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is Savior of all men, especially of all those that believe. These things command and teach. Let no man despise thy youth. Be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. And doctrine is teaching. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which is given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy 3, in verses 1 through 5, he talks about perilous times in the last days, and he gives a description of these people of the last days, and then he says this about them in verse 5, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. And then you drop down to chapter 4, and I charge thee therefore, and we should ask, what's the therefore for? Therefore is follow-up from chapter 3. Therefore, before God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's judged the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom... Preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering, and here's our word again, doctrine. For the time will come, will they not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Who are they that will not endure sound doctrine? It's those that have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. See, as long as you preach about salvation, they're okay. Because we got that. But when you start preaching about godly living and sound doctrine, they'll start getting cantankerous and angry and rebellious. And saying, we ain't listening to this. We'll go somewhere where we don't have to hear that. See, they don't want the whole counsel of God. They just want a certain topic. They just want to know that they're saved, and that's it. They don't want line upon line, book by book, expository preaching, explaining the meaning of the scriptures and how it applies to everyday life. Now, I want you to think about something. If you expect Christ to save you, He expects you to live as a Christian. And that word means Christ-like. And so if you're going to teach them to observe all things, you have to preach the whole Bible. But here's the pattern of a lot of churches that are independent Baptists. You preach salvation to the Sunday morning crowd, and you preach these other things to the Sunday night and midweek crowd. How are the Sunday morning crowd ever going to hear it if you don't preach it to them? That's why you have so many churches that might have 100 on Sunday morning, 40 on Sunday night, and 25 Wednesday night. And my belief is that churches are half full of unsaved people, or carnal at least. See, they want salvation, but just let me alone. I want God, but I want to dress the way I want. I want God, but I want a social drink. I want God, but I want to listen to whatever music I want. And watch whatever I want. And live however I want. Oh, I want God, but I don't want... You know, God didn't give us that choice. Salvation is a surrender... Of the will. It's not just, I'll take this and leave the rest. Now, there is growth, and we need to give room for growth. 
You know, we don't church discipline everybody that just disobeys or doesn't follow exactly the way we teach. You know, there has to be you know, time for growth and all that. But, you know, there needs to be this continual indoctrination or teaching of the saints. And that requires teaching the whole counsel of God. And thirdly, that brings us to practice of excommunication when necessary. Again, when necessary. And, of course, this is, this is what we call church discipline. And, again, we're, we're, in verse 20 it says, Teaching them to observe all things which I have commanded you. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. The word observe means to keep, to hold firmly. Commanded means to order. To command to be done. To enjoin. And that word join is a strong word. It means to prescribe a course of action with authority or emphasis. You know, church discipline is not for the untaught. Church discipline is not a pastor issue. It's a church issue. You know, there was a man that left here years ago. Pastor Green was still here. And uh, he caused some problems. He was, he was an error. And when there was a pastor change, he thought he could come back. So the deacons and I met with him and said, you know, there was this issue years ago. But all that was with, that was with the former pastor. No, it wasn't. It just so happened to be that he was the pastor at the time. And the pastor, was he's the overseer. So, yeah, he's the one that's going to lead in it. But your offense was not against him, although you think it was. Your offense was against the church. And he wasn't willing to make it right. See, he had offended the church, not just the pastor. And he had caused a schism in the body, not a schism against the pastor. So church discipline is for those, and church, so church discipline is for those who are in open disobedience and rebellion against the church. And, and we find this very clearly taught in the scriptures. You know, I'm not, I don't have time to, to, to go to all these, but you could look up these references later. But look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. We, and we see this very, very clearly here. Uh, you know, also in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul addresses an issue there, and these people were in, in open disobedience against the Scriptures, what the Scriptures taught. And, and, and the greatest exa- easiest example is 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. It is reported commonly, reported commonly, that there is fornication among you, such fornication is not as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. So he said, it's reported commonly. Everybody knows it. It's open disobedience. Open sin. You need to deal with it. You need to vote this man out of the church. But why didn't he vote him out of the church? So they'd never have anything to do with him again? No. Why did you correct your children? Because you hated them? No. Because you cared. And you loved them, and you wanted their way corrected. That is the same reason God corrects us. And it's the same reason that church discipline needs to be carried out at times. You know, they were to put this man out. You notice he, he goes on and says in chapter 5, verse 5, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So the purpose of disciplining him, of course, Second Thessalonians bears this out, that he may be ashamed, but you're, can you admonish him as a brother? In other words, you're to warn him of his waywardness. And his need to correct his way. That is the purpose of church discipline. It's never, well, there's the back door, just go. Or the front door, or whatever it is. Pastor, I'm not ever to say that. You know, if a person will not repent, 
they do need to be voted out. They need to be put to shame and pray that they repent. This man did, actually. If you read 2 Corinthians carefully, first, two, first chapter there, he talks about you know, the one that repented. They were to take him back in. And that is the purpose of church discipline. Uh, church discipline is to be practiced with restoration in mind. Restoration in mind. You know, again, and a pastor is not to lord over his flock. First Peter five three says, "Neither is being lords over God's heritage, but his samples to the flock." You know, to lord over means to hold in subjection, to be, to master or control. It'd be like making slaves out of people. A good example of this is in Third John verses nine and ten. And John there said that Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence, prayeth against us, and would not receive them we sent. We put them out of the church. He was, he was being a lord. John said, when I come, I'm going to deal with him. You know, John was an apostle. You know, we don't have pastors or bishops running around you know, coming and correcting what problems we have here because there are no apostles anymore. But see, that's what lord over, lord over, over God's heritage is. But there, there needs to be, when necessary, the practice of church discipline. And it's only for those who are unwilling to repent. And they're to be disciplined in, with the, 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 the hope in mind or the prayer in mind that they will, will repent and be restored to the fellowship again. That's the purpose of church discipline. It ought not to be done uh, in uh, anger or, or anything like that, or it will, but be done in the spirit of meekness and fear as Galatians chapter 6 tells us in verse 1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken to fault, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. You see, these are true marks of a New Testament church. This was the pattern that Jesus gave. This was the pattern we find in the New Testament, that there was biblical evangelism of the lost, there was, there was the continued indoctrination of the saints, the teaching of the word of God, uh, teaching them to observe all things, and then there was the practice of, ex- of, of church discipline uh, when necessary. You know, if a church is going to be a New Testament church, it needs to practice these things. You see, our, our pattern is not men. Our method does not, should not come from men. It should come from the word of God. That's our authority. And that's what we should rest in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the time in your word tonight. Thank you for the teaching that it gives us and the instruction, the complete revelation we have of yourself. Help us to understand these truths and to grow in our understanding daily as we read and meditate upon your word and your person and who you are and what you've done for us. And as we listen to the preaching of the word of God, I just pray that you just help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of thee, that we might be uh, edify one another and come unto a perfect man of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Uh, just thank you again for your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.